Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll discuss growing tensions between Ottawa and the provinces over the federal goal of net zero for electricity grids by 2035. The pushback from the provinces on the Trudeau government's plan is another sign that meeting our climate goals won't come without economic costs or political conflict. I'm grateful to get Amanda's perspective on the latest federal-provincial squabble and its implications for energy policy, the economy, and our climate targets. Amanda, thanks as always for joining us. Good to be with you. I've read the new federal policy paper on electrification, so our listeners and viewers don't have to. The key idea can be summed up as follows. Although 80% of Canada's power grid is non-emitting, we must aspire to reach 100% by 2035, not only to meet our climate goals, but because non-emitting energy is increasingly a chief demand of industry players and global trade arrangements. I want to start by talking about the claim regarding industry demands. One of the funnier claims in the paper, Amanda, is as follows, quote, Volkswagen picked Canada over the United States because of our high standards for environmental, social, and corporate governance, unquote. It seems to me that this leaves out the $13 billion we paid the company. But leaving that aside, why don't you talk about what you're hearing from executives and investors? How important is decarbonization to them? What, in other words, is the relative role of market pressure for these developments versus political or or policy factors? Yeah, and this is, of course, uh, a subject that will be politically fraught from beginning to end. I think we can agree, Sean, Um, has been will only get worse. And part of the reason for that is and your question kind of gets us to it, which is there is a view that we can uh, we can create a market and then allow that market to function properly and that that's really the best way to achieve our aims. There are limits to that, as we all know, and um, arguably something as large and pressing as climate change is uh, would be one of those areas where the where the pure market function simply won't be fast enough. I think is really the analysis. Eventually, we would get there, but not in time to keep us from burning off this planet. So, uh, if if we start from the premise, and this is the premise, I should say. I always start from now, and um, anybody who doesn't start from this premise will simply not agree with everything else that follows. Uh, but that is, climate change is real, uh, and that action must be taken. Uh, that whether that's mitigation, adaptation, uh, wh- whatever that action is, it has to be global in nature, and it has to be reasonably extreme. Is where I've arrived at. And to be honest, I don't know about you, Sean, but I, this summer has shifted my thinking again. I've had a few big shifts on climate change in the last decade or so. Uh, going from, you know, allowing space, air in the room that maybe this isn't man-made, that maybe it's not as bad as it seems, to no, it is, it's bad, it's man-made, we, we're the only uh, option to, to solve it. 
to this summer really kind of realizing that if we don't treat it like the crisis it is, uh, it is, of course, already in some ways too late. And we've talked about the insurance industry as one market that is flashing red on this subject. It is no longer warning us. It is saying we're opting out. The reinsurance industry has said we're out of Florida, we're out of California, uh, we are out of parts of uh, of the world that have relied on insurance to make their markets function. So long-winded way of saying the market answer is not is just not going to be enough, in my view. And so the political answer does become the solution to the problem. And there, as much as you have the provinces crying foul that the political answer is too strong, I would say it's way too weak. We have way too little consensus globally uh, at the very top leadership levels. Uh, and we that is, so to me, that's the disconnect. This has to happen. We don't have time to mess about. And yet, even in Canada, we're squabbling about, does the grid need to be greened before we can actually expect other industries to get to net zero? I think the answer is an obvious yes. Um, but it's, you know, Premier Mo in Saskatchewan, one of the provinces with the biggest uphill battle in greening their grid, saying this is the ideological whims of others. Well, as long as we're still having that conversation, Sean, I feel like we're in trouble. Yeah, there's there's so much there, Amanda. And I promise we'll come to the politics and public policy in a minute. But I, I want to stay on the economics for a bit longer. An underappreciated part of this story is that estimates indicate that we'll need more than double our current electricity generation capacity by 2050 to meet some of the policy goals that you've already referred to, including the federal mandate for electric vehicles, buses, and other forms of transportation. So Whatever one thinks about the federal plan to achieve net zero by 2035, we're already essentially committed to a massive expansion of clean electricity. We need, in, in the words of a new public policy forum paper, quote, clean grids and more grids, unquote. I suppose it reflects a bigger issue that we've talked about before on this show, Amanda, which is about bringing greater coherence to climate policy. What do you think is behind the piecemeal approach that we've seen at the federal level and, and across the provinces? I really think it's political expediency. I'm going to come back to that. Um, and, you know, to be fair, sometimes political expediency is economic expediency. There are fiscal realities and economic realities that as humans, whether that's our, you know, so-called temporal discount at play, uh, where we value things today more than in the future, uh, or whether it's just quite simply, we don't, we don't want to hurt each other. And so we don't want to shut down coal or we don't want to, uh, you know, shut down oil and gas. Um, what's happening in Alberta right now with the moratorium, brief as it may be on new green energy projects. Uh, I, I don't want to cast aspersions or suggest I understand the motivation, but if the motivation is in any way tied to protecting fossil fuel companies from the competitive forces, the margin pressure of green electricity, that's a problem. I don't know that it is, but that would be a problem. Um, I guess I, w what I kind of hunger for is an agreement at the highest level. And by the way, there's no question at all that just from a, a scientific point of view, the grid capacity has to expand, that the newer forms of energy are are just they're more load bearing. Um, I, one thing I've been kind of complaining about a little bit is where did the reduce part of the three R's go? You know, nowhere now do we say, let's just take cars off the road. Let's and I'm not somebody who wants to huddle around a campfire killing chickens with my bare hands. I, I like my mod cons. Uh, but I do think we've kind of lost our way a little bit where we say we can all have a car, three cars for everybody, as long as they're electric, no problem. That's not actually, I think, going to solve the problem of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of migrating Africans, which is going to be upon us. Uh, so I, I just feel like we better focus our attention where it needs to be. 
Yeah, let's stay on the subject of demand in Canada alone. The same public policy forum paper that I mentioned earlier put it this way, Amanda, quote, Together, the gargantuan Churchill Falls, Robert Robert Barassa, and Bruce Nuclear Generating Stations account for 11% of Canadian electricity generation capacity. We'll need at least another 18 of each by 2050, (laughs) unquote. In that sense, the net zero target for 2030 may be the relatively easy part. It's building the more electricity capacity that involves the unprecedented scale and speed in terms of bringing new net zero electricity online. Why do you think we've been so slow to get moving on this, Amanda? It seems to me of all of the challenges associated with climate change, and you mentioned earlier um, the risk of potential winners and losers, and we can get into that a bit. It seems to me that the infrastructure component ought to be the place where there's the most room for political upside or political consensus. But yet we seem to be behind schedule when it comes to bringing these uh, major infrastructure projects online. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think part of the problem is simply our messy federation. Um, And, you know, we have as part of our business of government series, um, I'm I'm excited about next week, uh, where I talk to uh, Kathleen Wynne and Jason Kenney. And Jason Kenney talks about the role of the federal government. And he comes at it. I, he's interesting, right? Because he was both a federal politician and a provincial premier. So uh, he's both sides of the coin. He, the, that the federal government can sometimes use um, its uh, its funding powers to sort of overstate or overplay its role in the lives of, uh, of citizens. And I think that's a fair comment, as political as that can get. Uh, the fact of the matter is, whatever these kind of writ large policies are, and we need them. We do need vision. That's surely one of the roles of the feds. Uh, it, the sausage gets made at the local level, so provincial, and then when you get down to grids, boy, municipal, right? Uh, different, uh, different zoning, different uh, cities will have uh, will allow or disallow the grid. I mean, transmission is actually not an easy thing to get done. If you talk to people in the industry, that's actually really hard lifting. And so, for a politician to kind of punt that and say, you know, all you have to do in Ontario politics is say gas plant. And you're going to shiver down the spine of everybody. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, why why do it if you don't have to? So you just kick that can down the road. And, and you know, we all hope there's a road for it to kick down one day. Yes, indeed. A big challenge here, as you alluded earlier, Amanda, is provincial variation when it comes to energy sources. The good news is that some provinces like B.C., Manitoba and Quebec are already close to 100 percent non-emitting energy. In, in fact, our current clean power quotient is more than twice that of the United States and 20 points better than the European Union. But other provinces like Alberta, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Saskatchewan, which rely on non-renewable energy sources, are much further from the target. Talk a bit about the interprovincial dynamic and what, if anything, can be done to help the latter provinces close the gap vis-a-vis the net zero target. I mean, part, I think we can uh, possibly agree, at least theoretically, that part of the problem for um, Saskatchewan, Alberta, New Brunswick is, yes, literal access to resources. So if you don't have a Churchill Falls in your backyard, that makes a difference. But it can also be that the legacy industries there are are fossil fuel generators, right? And that does, so we, it's a bit, this is a bit circular here that, you know, they, they, they can't get green because they don't want to get green. Um, I do think one role we could play, and even as I'm kind of saying it, part of my brain is saying that's a parochial view, but one thing we could focus on is sending electricity east-west instead of north-south. Uh, we have big long-term contracts, of course, to send um, hydropower down into Maine and, and New York. Uh, and you wonder whether or not that's a mistake, whether we'll regret that at some point. Um, but it's happened. It's already happened. They're, they're very long-term and they're very lucrative. Should we be focused instead on getting energy from Quebec 
over to Alberta, which is possible. Uh, it just would require some, it would require the kind of heavy lifting that went into a Trans-Canada Highway, um, visionary, hard work, um, and a very strong federal government, which I don't know that we're ever going to have again. Hey, Hub listeners, there's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism. We're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, The Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series, and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much of the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca. I would just say in parentheses, as ambitious and likely aspirational that project might be, it does reflect the kind of urgency or, as you said, extreme response that we're going to need if we're going to meet the targets that we've set out for ourselves. Another major obstacle is capital. The federal paper talks about spending several billions of dollars the next coming years on clean energy programs and projects. But there are estimates that reaching net zero and expanding the necessary electricity capacity could cost as much as a trillion dollars. As someone with proximity to the private sector, what role do you think it can play in this kind of massive rebuild of the country's energy resources and capacity? So this is where it could get, of course, exciting and the potential is enormous. Um, but we've seen a real stutter, um, starts and stops in how the capital markets are engaged in this. And that's partly because the uh, frameworks are also inconsistent. So uh, to me, if you could put in place uh, a, a very strict and a global uh, emission cap and trade system, uh, carbon credit, whatever, whichever system you would choose, uh, but a top-down kind of approach that says it's pay or play. This, you, this, if you admit, you will pay. If you don't admit, you get credits. You can trade them, etc. However, whatever system you want, then the capital market engagement could flourish, and you you would see a real um, a real boom in innovation um, in the exploration of new technologies, perhaps better technologies. I mean, the problem we have right now with the kind of engineered bottom-up system is we. We very likely are wrong. I mean, history will say we're wrong about, um, you know, even the, the fast growing things like wind and solar. There are probably better technologies. Maybe it's fusion. I don't know. Um, but whatever, whatever that technology is, it really is the ingenuity that's driven by capital that would find it. So this is, I mean, this is just my kind of Goldilocks dreaming. I don't know that it's ever going to happen until Florida is underwater. Um, and, you know, and, 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 you know, sub-Saharan Africa lives in Germany, uh, then maybe we'll focus our attention enough to say, let's do something together. But until then, we've, it's really been hard to be a capital market player, right? Whether it's green bonds or we added the S and the G to the E. Uh, was that good? Was that bad? It really slowed things down, Sean, I think. I don't know what you think. But if, if we really wanted to solve that problem, we maybe shouldn't have muddied the waters in that way. And it's no way to say that the S and the G aren't important. 
but it, it we need capital markets to solve this problem if we if we want to do it fast. Yeah, of course, I agree with that. And I would just say, I, I asked earlier, Amanda, about a piecemeal approach. And I think if I had one criticism of the Trudeau government on the climate file is it has an extraordinary amount of ambition. And that's reflected both in the rising carbon price, the clean fuel standard, the electric vehicle mandate. All of these things represent significant ambition. In fact, ambition that would be high relative to governments elsewhere around the world. The piece of the puzzle that seems to be missing for me is that kind of comprehensive story, how these different component parts fit together. Take the electric vehicle mandate, for instance. If we are going to mandate, you know, essentially the end of the internal combustion engine in the next 12 or 13 years, we're going to need the electricity capacity to meet that goal, or otherwise it is simply an aspirational target. It's not one that can practically be achieved. And so it seems to me one of the obstacles to putting that capital to work is the government starting to kind of piece together these disparate parts that ultimately form the basis of a nationally integrated and coherent climate strategy? What do you think is behind its unwillingness, or at least to date, its inability to tell that comprehensive story? I I completely agree that that's kind of the gap. Um, And I think it's also a a fair comment to say that this particular government has has gone far in terms of a green ambition, um, you know, and and you can quibble with the ways, but there's clearly a vision there, and that's been the agenda, and that's uh, that's been important in terms of setting our direction. I think you're right. We do we're punching outside our weight class on this file. Um, it, I think it's probably, to be honest, Sean, I suspect it's the political reality of of achieving their ends and knowing, you know, they they face literal constitutional challenges uh, around some of these policies. Um, and I guess uh, in the end, there, it comes down to kind of picking which battle you can win. Um, that This is where, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this is really where I wish our, the levels of government would spend a little bit more quality time together and in contact. Um, it's always surprising how little they do, um, but they can get a lot done when they do, when there's interaction. And these are the files that where it really matters. And they understand each other, right? There's no way that Justin Trudeau doesn't understand that in Alberta, this is a difficult message and it's a politically unsellable message and therefore it has to be handled cautiously. But that doesn't mean things don't have to happen. I mean, I think you're making the key point, which is we've we've set out some goals and there's a bit of a blank space in between of how we're going to get there. Now, I kind of remain optimistic that we will, that, you know, if if you set this, if, if you really are that that the the kind of clean emission vehicle goal is true. We're going to need to find a way to create the the grid uh, that supports that. The power stations, the the fueling stations, whatever that's going to look like, can it happen fast enough? I think it can. It's just a question of re- redirecting resources. Yeah. The only other thing I would add, Amanda, you mentioned the need for greater federal provincial coordination. I should say that there is something of a working group or panel between the federal government in Alberta and Saskatchewan on these issues, but I'd encourage them to go farther. You know, one of the grievances from the Western provinces in general and Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular is that they've been net contributors to the Canadian Federation through the tax and transfer system. They've in effect been there to support poorer provinces to ensure that they have the resources that they need to provide, you know, basic health and education and other social services. It seems to me this is an opportunity for the federal government to say, now it's our turn to help you 
make the types of transformational investments that you'll need to make in order to establish the kind of electricity capacity or energy sources that will fuel your economy, but not at the expense of the environment. I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but it seems to me if done well, not only could this have the economic and environmental benefits, it could represent a chance for, in effect, the rest of Canada to pay back in a way, at least conceptually, Alberta and Saskatchewan's massive contribution to the Federation. And I I regret that the political framing has created something of a a zero-sum or confrontational dynamic, because it seems to me this is a case where, you know, the best of federalism could come to express itself or manifest itself, which I guess maybe we'll just wrap up. We're speaking today on the 10th. We're anticipating the regulations themselves coming out sometime from the federal environment minister. What are you anticipating? How do you see some of these issues playing out? Maybe not over the long term, but say in the, in the coming weeks and months. Well, I let me just say that I completely agree. Um, and if what I'm, if I can paraphrase what you said, and because uh, I don't want to misquote you, but this is a role for a strong federal um, player. Uh, do we have one? I don't know. I don't know if this is the federal player, but this is a role for a, a, a government that understands this federation can bring it together. Um, united in a strong vision. And yes, how whatever that looks like, it can actually make us stronger as a country to do this. It doesn't have to be a fractious uh, situation of, oh, we're asking Albertans to to sacrifice something that uh, those in Quebec or Ontario, just by virtue of their resource base, don't have to do. That's we could, we could actually, I agree with you that there's a vision there that is very compelling. And we can do it. We've done that kind of thing before. We are that country. There is no reason why this hugely important subject isn't a uniting one. It should be. Um, I worry that now I think the environment minister will be, um, as this government has been, I think will go to, it will go as far as the government can, um, in terms of pushing regulations. But, uh, again, we will see the limitations of the shared responsibilities. I think that at the end of the day, it is consensus building that we need from the federal government, um, or, uh, it needs to go very much further. This is the other, the other view is go very much further and create an environment where there's is zero wiggle room and we we achieve targets um that that just have to be achieved now that i don't think that can happen realistically without the us uh without the eu but that would be if there's one other thing i wish our our federal government was doing it was having those negotiations what can canada barter with to make other countries come to the table the ira for all of its size and uh you know it's it will have you know interventionist forces in the economy it actually doesn't get us where we need the us to be um, anyway, so we need we need more from them. We need more from the EU. Um, I don't even want it to China as a whole other subject. <laughs> we can't even go there. <laughs> but we need that. We need we need global consensus. Oh, there's a ton of insight there, as always, Amanda. Maybe we'll come back to the subject of a North American approach to this issue because I do think you're right that that's probably where some of the biggest opportunities lie. I would just say, as we're wrapping up, for those following the release of the federal reg- regulations today. If you want a, a sense of whether the federal government is uh, a pursuing a kind of conciliatory approach or a firmer one, keep an eye out for the treatment of natural gas. If the government creates some room for natural gas even beyond 2035, that's a sign that Ottawa is actually looking for a deal. If it's not prepared to account for natural gas as a transition fuel, it means it's pursuing a kind of firmer one and, and claims of 
ideological motivation may have some basis. We'll have to take that up in a later conversation. Amanda, I want to thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Always good to talk, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.